we were on a promo tour on black radio and we were in Detroit, like a city pride right out of Detroit. And we we're just kind of waiting around until we meet up with the radio stations in the hotel. And our brothers come running down the hallway. They're like, we're on the radio. And, you know, they bust into our room and they blast curiosity. And we're just sitting there like, we're on the radio. We're on the radio. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Veil Media's Now You Know podcast. Um, look, I think everybody already knows, especially the uh, the ones that are consistently listening, um, we're, 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 we're trying to connect with the, the movers and shakers, people who have made an impact, uh, maybe in our Utah community, but today it, we have a guest that made an impact really kind of globally, which is uh, really special because I think, um, that, number one, that's tough to do no matter where you're from, um, but but we're super happy that, that our guest today has ties to Utah um, and can speak to you know, what it's like to... Uh, have an impact or an influence around the world. It's funny because like today we have social media influencers that kind of have a global impact because someone can be in China, like looking at your Instagram post or something. But this is pre that. So this is really organic, hard work, blood, sweat and tears to have an influence globally. Um, we have Moana Wolfgram Fenga, originally a Wolfgram. That's your that's your maiden name. Um and you'll recognize her. I know that we have a lot of people that listen that already you might even personally know her. Um, but uh, part of the Jets, and uh, which back in the day had songs that were... I think every little kid goes through like a, a phase where they want to like be on top of the world in terms of like, I want to... I want to be have a song on the Billboard charts. Or I want to be a professional athlete. And uh, Moana, you and your entire family have done that. So thank you for coming on our show. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. Um, so I, I, we'll 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 kind of go to the beginning, but sure. um, uh, I kind of want to before we even jump into that uh, because I, I am interested. The most of our time here will be about your your guys' story. Okay. But I think you would have an interesting perspective on some lighter note questions. Sure. So rapid fire or whatever you want to call these, but they're just kind of lighter note questions that kind of I feel like deal with our brand. But like, this is cool because you've been all over the world uh, and you're, you were all over the world really young. Like when... Yeah, <clears throat> when we came out as the Jets, I was um, nine years old and getting ready to run the record. And then by the time we hit the road, I was 11. So yeah, I was, I was pretty young. It was kind of a whirlwind situation. And you guys, you guys are from from Utah. I know your parents. Yes, parents came from Tonga. Right. In 1965, they immigrated here to America and came straight to the Utah Valley. So they're some of the first Polynesians to settle here in the Salt Lake Valley. And then um, I was born in Salt Lake City at the LDS Hospital, and grew. We all grew up in Rose Park, and then we moved away, maybe uh, when I was about five or six to. The Midwest, we traveled all over like a bunch of gypsy kids and then ended up in Minneapolis. Nice. Now, where's where's the furthest place that you ever traveled? She's, uh, let's see, probably maybe Asia and Switzerland, like in, up in Europe area. Switzerland's one of those like calendar places. Um, really. Yeah, it is literally like. what people think. If it's picturesque, it is you, you land, you drive through, see Lake Geneva, and you can't believe this is really a place it's wow. unbelievably gorgeous yeah that's cool 
Well, and that's why. So here, here are my softball questions or my lighter noted questions or whatever you want to call them. Like um, when you, uh, being that you traveled all over the world, I know that you lived in in Minnesota, which I have ties to. <laughs> also, um, uh, when 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 you think about Utah, what's a and these are like first thing come to mind. Don't have to think too crazy about it, but like. Uh, what's your favorite place in Utah? Like, kind of when you're like back in Utah and you're just like, man, it's just good to be, it's good to be home. Like, I'm here when I see that or I'm at this particular place. I feel. Um, I think the mountains, first of all, just yeah. we miss those mountains. They're so majestic. Um, Temple Square, that was kind of a memory for me, childhood memory. I was baptized there. And before they didn't, I think they had a chapel there or cool. a baptismal font. And then the canyons, just yeah. beautiful canyons. It's funny because I feel like that's kind of a general thing that a lot of people from Utah always take for granted. Mm. And then when they step away, a lot of times people go on their missions or college or whatever. And it's like, they're like, man, I miss those mountains. Like you kind of forget that they're there. And then when you leave, you're like, yeah, those are pretty cool to have. Just something to have. And we moved to Laie, me and my husband. And, you know, we would fight about which mountains were bigger. And I was obviously Utah. You know this. <laughs> so, but since we've lived here in my adult years, I think I've appreciated the desert and the beauty of this state more. Cool. Uh, you're little. You just think of a few sites. But the older you get, you realize this state is really actually very beautiful. What about food? Like when, what's a, what's a place like in, in all your travels when you're like, man, when I get to Utah, like, is there a favorite spot that you um, like to go to? That's I think overall the the bread, the bakeries here. I mean, these yeah. pioneers. I don't know what they did, but they knew how to bake bread. That's right. So when we go to Minnesota or anywhere else, when we travel, we have family that come from California. They're up in the stores picking up Dunford Donuts and Grandma B's Sycamore's bread. Yeah. We just the bakeries here are amazing, and I think it's because of the culture, the, the yeah. pioneer culture. That's so cool. Like the Lion House Rolls, too. Yes. Those are, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, no, that's cool. I, I appreciate it. Like, uh, I think um, I, I, I connect with that. And I had, that's actually a connection that I've never made. But when you say that, it resonates with me. Last thing, this is general. You kind of already answered it. But what's your favorite thing about just Utah in general? Um, I think it's the family-friendly atmosphere. Cool. Some people have told me, oh, Utah people are this and that, or the drivers are horrible. But yeah. when you get down to raising a family here, everything is very family-friendly. They've cool. got so many opportunities. I mean, even the parking lots have, you know, uh, expectant mothers. There's a lot just for that person, yeah. and it's wonderful. That's cool. I love those answers. Thank you for sharing that. Um, now let's jump back. Let's jump into your timeline and to your guys' story. So parents migrate here in the '60s. Mm-hmm. You guys start your journey, and uh, and in uh, part of like doing my due diligence to kind of prepare for this, it, did it start out like you have a brother that kind of learned instruments first, and he kind of was the one that, or I mean, it was a collective effort, but then it was his responsibility to teach. All right, this person's going to learn this. This person's going to because how, how many are there? Yeah, in- there's so there's there's seventeen of us, two that are Samoan. Um, but my parents were living here. My dad was working at Safeway in the milk department. Mother was a seamstress at Beehive Clothing. And they were just working at a little Polynesian restaurant doing a little review show. I think they stumbled on uh, a variety show with the Ed Sullivan show and yeah. watched the Jacksons and the Osmonds. And they were like, we got 10 kids. We need to figure this thing out. And they've always loved music. So they put their heads together and said, we should start a band. We've been doing little things here and there, little gigs. 
And my dad, kind of like the Selena movie, he picked up all the instruments, set it up in our living room, and nobody knew how to play anything. I think I was about five, but my brothers, uh, Roy and Heine, said, yeah, we got back from school and it, everything looked great, but nobody knew how to play anything. The neighbors are like this crazy tongue and just went out and bought all these instruments. And uh, pretty much that's how we got our start. Once my dad said we're going to start a band, um, it was between yard work, yate, or show business. Yeah. And we the had a little family home evening. Easier. It was, yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, we want to be sweating in the sun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we did show business and my dad got to work. He was determined. His family wasn't so supportive of him. I mean, they just thought, we just got here like 10 years ago. You really want to go this route? Um, but he really wanted to do something different from just the nine to five job. And uh, with my mom, uh, he knew that he could do it. So that's kind of how they got their start. Leroy was the oldest. He was dressed up in an overcoat going to these little restaurants as the little drummer. And he kind of learned from my mother how to play the guitar off, you know, just by ear, like all Polynesians. And then he was kind of the one that was given the, you know, the duty to learn the instruments. And basically he picked it up off the radio, learned the bass, learned the keyboards, learned the drums, and then just taught my brother Rudy Kathy and, and Heine, the instruments, and then they kind of started their own band. And the first song they picked up was You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. So, cool. And then they took that, this little set all Classic. over to the Tongan dances. Everywhere there was a Tongan dance, and they let the Wolfgrams play that they would do this little set. So that's cool, kind of culturally, because there were a lot of like functions in terms of like the poly community. Yes. It was yeah. able to kind of leverage you guys getting some yeah i mean thank goodness our culture is very social and we love get you know having little hula hulas everywhere right. so it was a good practicing place um my sister liz and i didn't even enter the picture until we were a little bit later i mean elizabeth could was about five or six could sing olivia newton john songs and just her voice was so mature and people would just say, how can she sing like that so they started incorporating her like hey let's bring liz, liz up and sing um, and she was so shy that they threw me just as her sidekick, just to kind of like stand there by her. Confidence boost. Yeah, yeah. So I was a little bodyguard pretty much. <laughs> um, and then eventually they threw in a Polynesian show in between their little music sets. And then our family became pretty much self-contained. My mom had all of us learning Polynesian section shows. And then we would do top 40 music on the side. Wow. And you said you started when you, when you got kind of thrown in the mix. You were about eight years old. You said um, I was about five, six years old when they threw us in the Polynesian shows. Okay, and then the older kids would do these little top forty sets in between our Polynesian show. And then how old were you when you started getting mixed into the band? Right into the band around eight and nine. Eight and nine. Uh, we ended up in Minnesota trying to do these this hotel chain, Hawaiian Inn hotels, and they people would be bust in mostly. <laughs> Senior citizens who couldn't afford Hawaii would right. roll up to this North Dakota, Iowa, to these Hawaiian inns. And the right. Wolfgram family would gr greet them at the lobby. And then they would spend their week at the Hawaiian inn and we would put on a luau. Um, but that, that hotel chain went bankrupt and we were stranded in Minneapolis. And that's when um, the last hotel was like, we don't want your Polynesian show. We just want top 40 music. And basically we threw away the Polynesian show and just focused on top 40 music. And then Elizabeth and I started coming to these shows, these bars and nightclubs. Yeah. And they would let us sit with our dad. And then we would sing and stay on the side. They allowed the kids, all of us were underage, as long as we had a guardian or a parent. So your dad was there. So, kinda... yeah. So basically, we were hustling at 
you know, I was 11. I mean, I was eight when we started doing these bars. Um, and then how old were you when, when you guys got stranded in uh, in Minnesota? About nine, ten years old. Nine, ten years old. And we started doing bars and nightclubs all over the Minneapolis Now, um, this area. ends up kind of being a blessing later on because this is, I think, in Minnesota is where you guys find yeah. uh, uh, a break to kind of uh, pursue this further. But I kind of want to unpack what you've already talked about a little bit further. Sure. Um, you talked a little bit about how uh, your dad maybe got some, uh, was given a hard time because, you know, I mean, right. it's unconventional, right? Like, yeah, it just was like, okay, crazy, and, you yeah. know, crazy. I mean, he was, you know, he had no education. He was yeah. dropped out when he was like, I don't know, from school and just kind of, you know, did his own thing in, in the island. So when he came here, nobody really had confidence that he knew what he was doing. But I think when you have 10 kids... Yeah, and you and your wife are like, we got to figure out, we got to figure out hustle. Yeah, I think you get pretty serious pretty fast. So, well, and I think that's actually pretty like I, I can understand the flack that he might have received back then, but um, you know, what I mean, there's there there is an element of hustle that like you know, what I mean, today looking back that I respect. You know, when I yeah. hear that, I'm just like, uh, man, that's actually pretty gutsy. You know what I mean? And and I think it was really gutsy. I mean, I don't know if I would have done anything, right. especially because he was still very new to America, yeah. barely speaking English. Him and well, my mom were... It, it seems know. like a, just demonstrating a principle of success, right? Like, And right. I think I, I love that portion of what you mentioned because I feel like um, sometimes today, like uh, when, like me, I was, I was born and raised here. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the islands or whatever. Right. So maybe there is a, a sense of uh, entitlement, minor right. or, or major, right? To where I'm just like, to where I feel like... Uh, People who have come from less and understand that this country, understand what it offers, mm -hmm. are not going to let the opportunity just go by the wayside, right? It's like, right. hey, this is what I think is good for my yeah. family. If there's any place in the world to do it, it would it be would this be place. Here. Yes. And, and I uh, think he figured, I've got nothing to lose. I've got everything to gain because everything's going against me anyway. Yeah. So um, what about so the, here's my main question behind that that portion of the piece that you just spoke about in your now now years later looking back uh -huh. um what do you is there what do you appreciate about that time now that maybe you didn't cuz you mean I'm sure right. eight, 8 9 years old you're just excited like cool we're going to go do another right. show like you know what I mean and you know what I mean it's kind of the, they say that poor kids never know that they're poor right, right? because yeah. like um and so, like, what do I appreciate? Let me, I'm trying to think. Um, I think, I think I appreciate my parents more. We were always, you know, teenagers. You're kind of like, why would you do that? You know, I can't believe Dad made us do this. But now that I'm a parent with six kids raising them, uh, he had a lot of gall. Like, he really did stick to his guns and say, you know, against all odds, I can't even speak English. Some people be like, look at this dummy with all his kids. Um, him and my mom pretty much beat the odds by doing something that no other Polynesian family did and not a lot of, you know, immigrant people in general would have done. They would have played the safe route, got a safe job and just tried to pay those bills and just go their way. But he was reaching for the stars, you know, and I can appreciate um, that he he could dream that big. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that answer. Um, going back to your story now, uh, what happened? How do you guys connect or make this breakthrough to this next level of entertainment to uh, in Minnesota? Because you guys were in Minnesota yeah. and somehow connections are made. In, in right, so we we 
started getting pretty good at doing these like lounge shows and bars and clubs. We started getting a little name for ourselves and a fan base. Were you guys? Did you guys formally have the name the yeah, Jets well, at this we, point? We didn't. We we were known as Quasar. Quasar. We went from the Polynesian Pearls, the Wolfgram Phenomenon, all these crazy names to Quasar because my brothers were so into Earth, Wind, and Fire. And yeah. they were, my mom was making these shiny outfits, and they were like Quasar, the most powerful force in the universe. And then. You know, Roy would do this little thing with his voice like a robot, and then we would all jump up there and look like a bunch of aliens <laughs> dancing around. Um, we were Quasar. Quasar was getting a name in Minneapolis, and we were kind of beating all the other bands in the industry there. Um, what what year is this? This from? is an uh, 82, 82. Yeah, 1982, 83, kind of that, that age, um, that era. And we started hearing about some, my dad was like, we got to do something else. We got to find a way to up it. We're doing great here and we're getting gigs, but there's got we have to find the international success. So we tried out for this show called Star Search. It was an international like American yeah. Idol back in the day. And we, we didn't make the cut, um, but we'd heard about a guy who was retired and he was a Motown rep. Managed, you know, young Stevie when he was a kid, nice. Stevie Wonder and also David Bowie. And we knew he was in the area just selling cars for his dad's dealership. And basically, um, our agents and our parents just kept bugging him. And he kept saying, I'm not interested. Nope, not interested. Been in the business, not interested. And I think we caught him off guard, and he just couldn't think of an excuse. And basically said, I'm on my way home. I'll stop at the bar that you guys are performing at, and I'll just, you know, that way you can get off my back. And he basically told us that when he walked in, the band was great. He could not get over my sister Elizabeth's voice. He couldn't believe that this voice was coming out of a 10-year-old kid. So he snuck back the next night, hid in the back, and watched the band again. And he said, man, this is a family of brothers and sisters. They're ethnic. Uh, they look very diverse. And that voice, I think we could do something with it. And basically invited my parents to his home and said, I've been out of the business, but I think we have a shot if we can... Uh, create a new brand for you guys, a new name, a new look. I think we can do something with it. All his friends and family was like, you're out of your mind. You, you should not do this. I mean, you've got everything. The odds are against you. But he just felt determined. He was like, there was something in this family that he thought, I think these guys can make it. And so he took us on. Don Powell is his name. Cool. First manager. Now, are, you, are, are the kids informed about everything that's going on? Like, are you guys knowing that, like, hey, mom and dad's at a pretty crucial meeting right yeah. now? Yeah, well, he ended up inviting all of us. So oh. anytime something was even spoken about the music business, it was always in a family meeting. Cool. It was always transparent. What can be said to me can be said Yeah, in front of so my dad was like, I've been praying. I pray for a man to come. I've seen him. Every guy I've seen before that, as soon as they come, I see the, the word fake on their forehead. <laughs> I know it's not good, but when he met Don Powell, he said, I think this guy is the real deal. And so, yeah, it was always kind of transparent. Us kids always knew what was going on. Now, like, uh, this is kind of maybe a jumping, kind of like comparing and contrasting now to then. Is, is this pretty standard? Like, you uh, mean, for, for someone back then uh, to make it in the music industry or entertainment industry, is that pretty standard? You got to kind of just uh, find someone that knows someone and, and try to get in front of them and... Yeah, pretty. I mean, I mean, you got to have some connections. And my dad would always say, we have to find the guy with the connections. Once we get the right guy, he will connect us to everybody else. So I think it is kind of a standard. You, you know, it's who you know. It's social. You know, you're connecting with other people and um, making connections. That's totally part of the whole game of 
Now, now, so Don ends up being pretty instrumental in you guys kind of breaking through. Um, yeah, he's then, the one that came up with the name. He was like, Wolfgram, you just don't look German. It's too long. Uh-huh. He's like, Quasar, it sounds like a TV set. He was like, <laughs> you got to be short and simple. And he came up with Jets by listening to Elton John. Um, Benny and the Jets was the song. And he, yeah. he was like, let's, let's do Jets. It's short and simple. Uh, the only thing is that my dad said the sets or the shets. So like <laughs> Polynesians don't have J in the yeah. alphabet. So that was the funny part is it. All of, I mean, I was 11. I was like, Jets? That's so weird. It sounds like, you know, I don't know. But yeah. he knew what he was talking about. He yeah. knew it would work on T-shirts and buttons and baseball caps. So he had a very, I mean, you knew he knew what he was doing if he was already getting the picture, the yeah. image together. Um, he definitely knew what he was doing. We were following his lead. What was, the, what was the first song that you guys came out with? So we came out with a single called Curiosity, uh-huh. and it was an R&B. We got signed to MCA Records. Back then, the record companies were split. There was a pop market and a black division. Mm-hmm. So we were signed to a guy named um, Gerald Busby, who became Motown's president, um, and he signed us to the black department. So we went that route, and on purpose, they took off our picture and wanted to see how well we would do just in the black department, black radio, and we did really well. Um, they they probably wouldn't have believed that it was us. So our yeah, it was kind of a strategy that they used to see how well we would do. Once they got Curiosity out, it went to number nine on Billboard's R and B charts. Then they released Crush on You, and then they they knew that would be the crossover song. They were Don's whole perspective was that he would get us introduced to black radio and then cross this group over because he knew people would be blown away by the voices and the image. We weren't a black group, but we were ethnic enough. And as soon as they'd hear we're from Hawaii or Polynesian, yeah. he says nobody, everybody loves Hawaii. So yeah. they would, they would, you know, like that. And that's basically what happened was is Curiosity was the first single, got us through the door, got us on all these like rap fests and, you know, black yeah. radio and stuff. And then we crossed over to pop. That's interesting. So, that was all calculated. It's interesting to hear the strategy behind right, that, right? Yeah. So it's like, let's put out this song. We're gonna, you know, what I mean? we're gonna break into uh, the black market, and mm-hmm. then, you know, what I mean we have this song in our back pocket, right? And that's gonna be our crossroad. That was all. It's very calculated strategic. before, yes. and and he and he was he was saying that you know, the record company didn't believe in it. I mean, they have so many groups on the roster that. They're just waiting to cut groups. Yeah. Um, so Don had this mission to prove to them that he had a group that could sell over a million units. Most of them said no group sells over a million units on their first record. But he knew if he had a strategy, um, he could do it. And after Crush on You came out, he knew that that wasn't the only thing left. Uh, you Got It All would be the single that would cross us over to the adult contemporary charts. And with Elizabeth's voice and this kind of more mature you had kind of the R&B flavor of Curiosity, the pop song with Crush on You, then the ballad with You Got It All is what crossed us over and sold us over a million units right away. So lead singer, help uh, help those that don't know. who's who's. So who's my sister singing? Elizabeth is the lead singer, and I was her lead. I, I sang lead with her, but she was basically the lead singer in the beginning. So for those three three songs, it's Elizabeth? Yeah, I sing Crush on You with her. Um, right. We, we both switch off and on. Right, but. that's what I'm just trying to... I already knew that. I just <laughs> know you're trying to be humble, and I think... Because yeah. uh, Crush on You deserves a little bit of the spotlight, too, because that's a huge song, like... That's one of those ones like where you mean you'll be right. like in an airport somewhere like and it comes on and like and I feel like for a lot of polys and and maybe a lot of people from Utah who 
uh, you mean you're not connected with you guys and identified. Yeah. That's just one of those ones where you're like, tight. Like that's <laughs> like, it's, we it's, were we were totally stoked when we heard that song, and it was written by Jerry Knight and Aaron Zygman. They both wrote all the music or was on the soundtrack for the movie Breaking. Okay. And so when we had heard that cool they were movie. the writers, we were like, what? These are the guys that wrote Ain't No Stopping yeah. Us and all the songs. So, yeah, when we heard Crush, we were sold. And they came to Minneapolis and recorded all the music there with us. So, yeah, I mean, we could not believe that we were getting this break. We couldn't believe that a record company had signed us. And then Don was picking. We had over 200 songs to choose from. Basically, Don picked them all. I mean, we were completely oblivious to what they do in the music. So right. um, he was completely instr- instrumental in the Jets' success. Now, what's, what's the timeline? Help, help us understand the timeline. So from the time that you guys met Don, that very first mm-hmm. meeting, right? So um, to Curiosity, what was the turnaround? Uh, we, we signed a record deal. We signed a management deal with him in 84. 84. And we signed a record deal in 85 and released our single in 86. Like we, it was it was going pretty fast. Now um, by eighty seven, I think that's when. Well, I'm I'm trying to think. It's around nineteen eighty four as we signed our management contract, and by um, eighty five we were signed to MCA, and I think it was eighty five to eighty seven is when we released the first album, and those singles started coming out. So um, when you sign in eighty four, the album comes out somewhere around eighty six is eighty seven yeah. somewhere around there. Um, but you signed in 84, so two years, roughly, the yeah. album comes out. Does your lifestyle change pretty quickly from when you signed in 84, or is it kind of a gradual no, thing? No, it was, I mean, for our manager, Don, you know, where we there was a certain time where we were estranged after our success. Uh, but now that I'm older, we were able to reconnect, and I ask him all kinds of questions. Because when you're 11, you don't ask questions. Right. You don't even know what's going on. But when you're 40, you know, you start asking, hey, how did this happen and how did that happen? Um, he took a huge, uh, you know, leap of faith having his son. I think he put over half a million into an investment in us. So we went from uh, living in a three-bedroom duplex with 12 people in it yeah, huge to family. him moving us into a home, bought us two vans. I mean, we were living in that little duplex with a cargo van, and we, and we just had folding chairs in it. That's where we went yeah. to all of our gigs. And when he found us and we signed his management deal with him in 84, um, he ended up purchasing a vehicle for us and said, we got to move you into a house where you fit. Because there was eight of us in the group, but my parents had just had twins. Mm-hmm. My mom was still, you know, popping out kids. Mm-hmm. So he was like, we got to find you a home that's big enough. So we immediately seen um, him change our life, just living standard, you know, McDonald's was not a place we used to go to regularly. So when when we he said, Hey, let's just roll up and get some food, we were like, Well, we can get whatever we want from right. McDonald's. You know, we were we could tell the change was coming and with the success, people go, What was the biggest thing you changed? I said, Food. I mean, <laughs> we would go back to the hotel after shows and we'd be like, Let's get some room service. Like That's we were so always cool. excited about just like eating well. We couldn't believe um the food was so good. Yeah. You know, it was growing up with so many kids in the family. You eat a lot of sugar rice and yeah. a lot of cocoa and bread and whatever, yeah. you know, was on the clearance rack. That, I think that's a, that's a cool perspective. I'm, I'm glad you shared that because there's like a, there's an innocence in that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that like, we can get like, are you okay if we get this? You know? Yeah, and, and yeah. So yeah. That's uh that's really neat that, I'm glad that you shared that, that part of your journey. Now, um, 
So eighty six stuff starts coming out. Well, let's go. Let's go back to the first time you guys heard yourself on the radio. What was that experience like? Where were you? I'm sure that's something that's yeah. kind of like tattooed. Curiosity. We were on a promo tour on black radio, and we were in Detroit, like a city pride right out of Detroit, and we're just kind of waiting around until we meet up with the radio stations in the hotel. And our brothers come running down the hallway. They're like, we're on the radio. And, you know, they bust into our room and they blast curiosity. And we're just sitting there like, we're on the radio. We're on the radio. Um, Yeah, it was surreal. It was just, you know, we had been in these bars and nightclubs, you know, just doing cover tunes of everybody else. And we couldn't believe that was us, you know. Um, yeah, just kind of a, it really is a dream come true. And you hear yourself on the radio, your voice. We're all just sitting there. I can't believe it's you know, happening. That's so. so cool. Yeah. Um. Now, so you guys were touring straight away then? Um. I, I don't know how this. How yeah, I mean, he, you know, what he did is once the record was released, it was time to promote. And so they had, record company had a certain amount that they would give each group. And we would go and do a promo tour and visit radio and newspapers in every city. And that's what we were on. Uh, and while we were on that tour, we started getting jumped on to other people's, oh, so-and-so's in town. You guys want to warm up for these guys? You guys want to do shows for these guys? And um, I remember going to Chicago, and they were telling us, well, there's a new talk show out, and they've never had a music group on there, but you'll be on there with Kenny G and some other somebody else. Um, it's called the Oprah Winfrey Show, and she's new. And so we were the first group musical group to make it on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and no she was way. brand new. Like she had just come from being locally popular in Chicago to finally being syndicated nation, you know, nationwide. I had no idea. Yeah. So kind of cool. We were, you know, we didn't know how to say her name. We were like, okay, what is her name? Oprah That's Winfrey. That's so funny. Yeah. And then yeah. she ended up And then being, you're like, Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Everybody knows who Oprah is. Yeah. And, and um, so when, when you're touring, like um, – I'm I'm trying to tap into like the mind of a child, right? Like, because this is just <laughs> such a crazy experience, it is, right? Yeah. Like when I'm eight and nine years old, like I'm still passing notes to like the girl that I like <laughs> and hoping the teacher doesn't yeah. catch it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not even thinking about touring the country and having songs on the radio. Um, is that is that like a kind of kind of going back to that? You know what I mean? Poor kids don't know they're poor because they're just you know right. having fun, right? Like it. It's just on the opposite end. Are you are you guys all cognizant of what's going on, or are you guys just like this is fun? I'm hanging was, out with my it, siblings. Like, it was a little bit of both because because we were so young and working. I mean, we'd been the breadwinners for our family when we were little. There's a you have to have a sense of maturity. So for a nine year old, we knew what was going on, but still, you're only nine or ten. Yeah, um, yeah there there was a sense of excitement because we had been in the business working um we we were getting our record deal and and i just want to rewind a little bit because this was kind of surreal for us um looking for demo songs and our manager brings us a song from a a writer in in europe named boy george and he was the one who wrote one of our our demos it was a reggae song and then when he ended up being in america and touring across the country our manager said, well, I have a surprise. You guys are going to fly to Indiana to meet him. And we were like, we've never been on a plane. We've never, you know, we're going to be Boy George. And I was a huge Boy George fan. Yeah. So at like about that young age, um, we knew what was happening. It just, it didn't hit us 
until years and years later when I became a mother. I'm sitting back looking through stuff, cracking jokes with my sister Liz, thinking, how the heck did this Tongan family even make it? How did we even, you know, I, I just can't you understand it is one in a million chance that we would be so fortunate to yeah. be in that position. It doesn't really hit you until you're older, at least for me. Yeah, well, I think you touch on something that's kind of worth exploring more too, like because uh, uh, the kind of, you know what I mean. As I grew up, I I I knew you know what I mean. Uh, I'm 30, so like growing up, I always heard you guys' music, and I kind of I always knew the the Wolfgrams as the family, the Tongan family that uh, made it big in the music industry. They're the first ones, and. And so I was just like, that's so cool. Like, you know what I mean? And as I grew up, I, you know what I mean? I, I would ask my dad and his story, his version is, is this. He's like, I went on my mission and I came back and there was a Tongan family on the radio. And I was like, <laughs> wait, who, who's this? And they're like, it's the Wolfgrams. He's like, wait, what? And he's just like kind of thrown off. And it was kind of because he wasn't listening to music for a couple right, of years yeah. on his mission. And then he said that it was just kind of a surreal thing to, to think like, Wait, that and and there was kind of an attachment, kind of like we've right we've towards, where it's like, hey, that's awesome, like you know what I mean, like yeah. one generation here, and we're and then next, yeah, and we're hanging out, you know what I mean, with Oprah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so it, like, it definitely was a surreal time for us too because we, you know, we were struggling so much, traveling all over and getting no's everywhere. My dad and mom were just like, well, we're gonna try living in Canada. Well, we're gonna try living here. We're going to try doing this. And whenever we would head back to Salt Lake, there was always like, what are you crazy people doing now with your poor kids? You poor kids are just going through the ring because your parents are, you know, loony. Mm -hmm. um, so to actually make it was such a shock to a lot of people and to us, you know, that we'd gone through so much, left, you know, Utah and went away to Minnesota and then, you know, ended up getting a record deal. Um, it was it was happening so fast that we could barely get a grip on the success of it. But we could tell whenever we'd see people, they were like, wow, we just watched you on TV. You were on Hot Tracks. Whitney Houston just introduced your song. Like, we were just like, what? You know, so it was quick. It was fast for us, too. The, the success was coming. Now, this is, again, just like the little kid in me. Like, when you guys are in that industry, because now... Like you said, Whitney Houston, I didn't know that. Was that a real thing that she introduced you guys? Yeah, she was a, like on Hot Tracks. It was a video show that would come on Friday nights. And she introduced like the top 10 countdown. Yeah. And the Jets were on it. And I was thinking, this is Whitney Houston. And she was brand new too. How Will I Know and Greatest Love of All was just, she was Jeez. at the top of her game. So, um, yeah, it's just like surreal to see your group all affiliated with that same genre of uh, stars yeah did you uh did you guys so was there a lot of i don't know i i every, i'm like uh the rest of the general public that thinks that like famous people just hang out with famous people all the time <laughs> so did you guys did you guys meet a lot of um we were on tour or? a lot we we went on tour our first rap tour it was with ll cool j the fat boys and beastie boys and salt and pepper and we were one of the only groups that was a band so we got booed off the first few times and nobody oh, knew who the jets were but it, it was just they were exposure and mca had a few gigs here and there um but in the middle of those rap tours people started to warm up they're like hey this is that group that's the jets they're from hawaii you know like yeah. they would they'd be talking about the jets um yeah most bands they all have after parties yeah. i mean we were on the same label with new edition um, so 
they all had, there was always girls at the hotels. Yeah. There was always after parties. But the Wolf Grimes was just all business. We'd go in and do our gig, come yeah. back home uh, to the hotel and sleep and get ready to get on this tour bus to the next city. It was mm. just, we didn't really... Uh, we didn't really mesh. I mean, we didn't really rub shoulders with. Yeah. Uh, it was just basically Those business. Business I mean, they used like, to crack up and call us the Seven Up family because we had no alcohol in our dressing yeah. room. You know, um, there was no lewd performances on yeah. stage, and a lot of groups would tell, "Hey, your sisters probably shouldn't watch our show. It's gonna get a little funky up in here." Yeah. And we'd be like, "Okay." Um, so yeah, um, we didn't rub a lot of shoulders with people. Every now and then, we would meet up. And probably see each other at the venues. Yeah. But it was never really like an on and... Yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of groups that knew each other well. Yeah. Um, but we were just a family of our own, just kind of doing our thing. And what, what was the best song? Was it was it Crush on You that... that was that the best song? Or I think it was Crush on You and um, You Got It All. Because they both... You Got It All went to number one on the adult contemporary. Crush went to number three on the pop charts. So those were our big... Big hits, Curiosity was, yeah, I think we had all together, there were probably eight top 10 hits. That's awesome. Yeah, throughout our career. But yeah, Crush on You was a big one for us. Did you guys ever have, again, this is a lighter question, but like, did you guys ever have like those experiences where people were like, oh my gosh, can we, like, like, because uh, I just think it, you know what I mean? When I was a little kid, you know what I mean? I wanted yeah. to be like a professional athlete. And I, I used to be like, <laughs> man, I'll give, uh, I'll give, a million dollars to all my friends. Like, right. you know what I mean? And it's just like the little kid and you know, right. things like, but um, to be experiencing that actually at the age that I was dreaming of those things, you know what I mean? Where you're going and there's thousands of people at yeah. a show cheering you on. Um, that, that, that was definitely, that? A, it's another surreal thing to go on a stage and they're chanting jets, jets, jets. Um, yeah, it's just unbelievable to us. I think that the great thing about our band was we were a family. So uh, there was no room for egos, uh, you know, but it was definitely like shocking to us to see crowds of people standing in line waiting to come watch your show um, and know your name. Like they're chanting, they know the songs. There's always tons of girls because they, they were all there for the boys. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And Liz and I were tomboys, so we were just, you know, we were the lead singers in the group, but total tomboys. Everyone was like, can we meet your sister Kathy? She's the cute keyboard player. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's funny. And and I was going to tell you one thing. We we had gone to Boston and did a few shows, and they had told us there's a new group. They're really thankful for, you know, they're going to warm up for you for a few shows. Uh, they're called the New Kids on the Block. Oh, and man. we go and do shows with them in Boston when they were, you know, no one had ever heard of these boys. And three months later, we're warming up for them, and then we we can't even warm up for them. They're just too big. And they end up going on a world tour. Um, but, yeah, I mean, immediately how fast you learn in the business. Uh, um, just the way, you know, success works. Yeah. Uh, for boy bands, man, that's like number one. Got the right music, the right mix, and you know you just make it as big as you can. And then for the Jets, we had our struggles too, yeah. trying to figure out where we fit in. Um, we were kind of a squeaky clean family, and the older we got, they were telling us we got we gotta just we gotta give you a little sex, we gotta give you guys a little something to kind of make your image more mature. And yeah. I just always thought it was so uncomfortable to deal with the industry after you've been in it and they're trying to reinvent um, you. Yeah. Um, they're trying to sexualize you so that you've got a mature, mature audience. And besides the fact that we're 
you know, Tongan were also members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So right. I don't know where, where we're going to fit the immorality in there because yeah. that's just not part of our, that's just not what we are. And so that was a challenge for us. Um, what, what do you think when you look, um, when you look back on it all, like, uh, the, the wave, right? The, that wave of, of hitting these eight, eight singles that are like a, a top 10 chart songs or whatever. Sorry. I don't know the, yeah, if no, I'm no. like <laughs> verbalizing that correctly, but, um, but like when, what, what do you think your biggest lesson that you take away from that time is? Um, my biggest lesson that I've learned since then is that you never let go of the friends that knew you before you were anything and that you maintain your family values. You somehow maintain a relationship because there was a time in our business where our family was a family for everybody, but we were not a family when we were behind the curtains or, you know, it was just business was taking over. Um, people were getting let go in the family, getting cut. And it was like, wait, we're a family. Well, she's not here, so she's out, he's in. Uh, we got to keep, you know, hustling for work. Show business took over. And um, you also notice, too, that when you don't have success, the people that knew you before the success, they're still there. But the ones that rolled up when you were riding high, they're gone. None of them are there to help you out. None of them. In fact, some of them are stepping on you or talking stink about you. Jeez. And uh, yeah, I mean, you just learn the hard way who your friends are. But I would say anchor yourselves to good friends. Keep your friend, your relationships with your family tight because it, it, will, it will do a number on your family. I mean, you look at the families in the industry today, the biggest families in music business, and they all have issues, big issues. Why? Why is that? Is it? Is it? Is it because the industry starts trying to manipulate and change? I think it's the. I think it's a combination of things. For me, because I can't speak for everybody else, I think it's the desire to feel, you know, fame. You you want to be famous. You want to you want to be with the the cool people. You want to be um, relevant. Um, so you start doing things you don't you shouldn't do. I mean, we we have a hit song on our second record called "Rocket to You." It was a Grammy nominated song. And it's probably my biggest regret um, because we love the beat. The song was written for Earth, Wind & Fire, but it was passed on. So the Jets took it, and it was a great hit for us. But the, the content of the lyrics, I mean, I'm a mother now, so when my 15-year-old son was like, what's this song about? You guys are in a video. like You, you girls are wearing, like, condoms for, <laughs> for skirts. And by the end of the video, you guys are in a bedroom scene. Um, the whole song is about a guy who can't fix his girlfriend's toaster or fix her car, but he can sure rock it to you all night. And what we were told was, oh, no, it's just a songwriter who's saying, I can't really do anything for you but write you songs. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a song that he can't do anything but get in your pants. And so you have things that you don't realize you're doing. You know, when you're in the industry, you're, you're compromising without knowing it. And so that's why I say if there's some things I've learned is it um, stick to people that have been there for you from the get-go and then um, keep your relationships and keep your morals because you'll lose them quick. This industry is famous for people selling their souls to the industry for fame. They want that money. They want that fame. They want that lifestyle. And when it goes away, people are robbed of I mean, they don't know how to be normal. They don't. Some of them are on drugs or alcoholics because they just can't figure out how to be relevant without it. 
this is a similar question, so I, I apologize if it if it sounds redundant, but like, um, what's the biggest illusion, right? That that right? I as a little kid who wants to be the next, you know what I mean fill in the blank, you know what I mean? I want to be the next, uh, I don't know, Justin Bieber or whatever, right? right like yeah. I want to be the my wife's probably gonna hear like, don't worry, you ain't <laughs> no Justin Bieber, <laughs> like, yeah. But like, uh, but like. You mean as as a kid or someone who looks up to you know what I mean these quote unquote role models, uh you know what I mean like, what's the biggest like facade? facade yeah, or? well like what 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 do I what like, what's not true about what I'm thinking about? Because I'm thinking like man I'll be, you know I mean what or or maybe maybe it's even about the lifestyle right? Yeah. Like I, I think it's perception. I think it's perspective. Uh, I think one thing I loved about my dad when we were traveling and touring was he was the same Tongan father with the slippers, the broken English uh, accent. Um, and he was always grabbing all the food at the at the dressing rooms. Oh, the kids at home going to need some food. Yeah. And he was just constantly the typical father of 17 kids. Just always, you know, like he never let go of that. Um, it's perspective. If people come into this business wanting that the, the big crib, the whole lifestyle from MTV or whatever it is, they're going to be sorely, you know, disappointed that these are just regular people. Yeah. And I feel like the older I've gotten, the more I've tried to be more real in our performances, the more I've tried to connect with people so that they know I'm just as human as you. Um, I got kids who don't listen to me. Uh, I got a husband and I, we don't always get along. Yeah. I got, I mean, we, we do shows now in 80s, 80s uh, arenas other 80s groups and we can be a diva for the night and you know we're in our arena doing our big show <laughs> and then tomorrow I got to go do eight loads of laundry yep. you know like I try to keep it real so that people understand when you get off that stage because if you forget that you're a real person yeah you you will not be able to survive you'll just keep thinking I've got to do something to to maintain this persona yeah but if you stay real people I think they'll respect that more I think, uh, first of all, I love that you brought that up. And I think that's something that's like, um, that even uh, translates through time. Because like, you'll, you'll see today, um, like people will get caught up even on social media, right? With a certain image that yeah. like, man, I've posted so many cool pictures and I've had so many likes. I need to keep hitting the same amount or better. <laughs> right. And so, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of like instead of having an industry manipulate you, you kind of do it to yourself. Yeah. Because you're, yeah. you're after the wrong things. But um, so I think that message or the principle that you're talking about is 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 true. And, and I think there's actually a growing... Um, let's call it audience or you mean a growing yeah, like a trend where people yeah. are trying to be more real yeah authentic. more authentic and, yeah. and like and you'll see that it's not so much about the like i i nerd out about business stuff right like i love like uh like that's just kind of what yeah. i enjoy and you know what i mean i feel like there was a time where it was about the slick talkers like yeah. the, you know what i mean guy in the yeah, suit with the nice haircut yeah nice with the ride but um You'll you'll find there's there's a couple super successful people here just in Utah County like that are t shirt yeah, and jeans, jeans like and, yeah. you know what I mean right. forgot to shave today it's all good <laughs> probably you right. know I mean I want to rock a beard and like you know what I mean and it's just like you know what I mean you I almost gotta, you almost respect that more a hundred percent and I think yeah. um and I'm glad I that's a you know what I mean amongst all the craziness and the negativity in terms of uh, social media media in general like. That's one of the things that I've been appreciative of in terms of 
something that's trending, right? Is people right. being more authentic? And I think um, you, you're speaking to seeing the same yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, you, the, the way you realize that is the Jets had so much success in them like five years straight, five to six years, and then we were dropped from our record company, bankrupt while we were on a USO tour. And back in Minnesota, where we couldn't get work, um, trying to gig at these little hole-in-the-wall joints. And then um, our dad ends up deciding to buy a bunch of pigs because we had a, about an 11-acre lot back in Minneapolis, and we were living off pig food. I mean, you go from being performing in arenas and rubbing shoulders with all these successful artists to literally like, oh, nobody's calling, nobody needs there's a new kid on the block, literally. There's new kids out there. So you guys are part of the old. We're in with the new Jack Swing, Jets, or 80s stuff. You learn pretty quick. Um, you get a humble pie right away. So if you're humble through the whole thing, you will not be surprised at the end of it. Because there's going to be success for everyone. But if you maintain some sense of normalcy, yeah, jeans and a t-shirt, and not always walking around with a pimped out suit on or whatever, yeah, I think you will maintain you really are i love that um what about um so you you mentioned your your mother mm -hmm. now yeah um do your kids want to get into the music industry or well they they love the they love music i don't know if they really want to get into it i've got my brother who has 14 kids they're involved in music they've got a band and they do that um people have always asked me hey are you gonna push your kids i'm and my first instinct is Hell no. <laughs> and I think it's because of what I went through. Um, I would never want my family to go through what I went through with my family, my own kids. Um, it There was a lot of strain. My parents, a lot of us siblings, uh, we just didn't like each other at the end of it. And when everything went sour and we were working at casinos and bars in Vegas, not the big showrooms, just the little, you know, hole-in-the-wall joints, um, you kind of lose your sense of like, are we still a family or is this just money? Is this just got to get a gig and do your thing? Um, so, yeah, I hesitate right away to encourage my kids to come into this business because um, because it's an influential business. Yeah. So when it's influential, you have to roll with the tides. And some roll of the tides, whatever the roll of the tides are, you may just so sell your soul to whatever that tide is. And it's not worth it. You see too many groups, they got one-hit wonders out there, and they can't get their crap together. They're just buzzed out because they're just living in their heyday, and they don't know how to live in reality. Some of their marriages break up. So, yeah, my first instinct is, is for my kids is be old enough to know you love it no matter if you make money or not. Mm -hmm. And then if you love it, opportunities should come. And then if opportunities don't come, you still got your guitar. You still got your voice. So do it because you love it. You'll always... You'll always have your mom as your biggest fan. But yeah. yeah, so I don't know. I just I hesitate for my kids because of what I went through. Mm -hmm. And I've been writing a lot of things that I, I hope to release out so that they could just learn this business. They, you know, there's a lot of talented people that never made it. Yeah. All because they didn't look right. They didn't have the right image. And that's pretty unfortunate because, you know, that's talent. But no, you didn't fit the mold. Uh, and that can do something to people. They just they break up over things like that. They just can't, you know, process. They really beat themselves up over stuff like that, and they shouldn't. They're they're just fine the way they are. I think uh, I think that's powerful coming from you because uh, you, I feel like I think everything you're saying people have an idea of right, but like it's it's validated because uh, you've been on both sides of the fence. You know, I mean, you've been 
at at the top of the music game and and you started out just like everybody else did with right, the, yeah with the guitar and so uh or whatever it is. Speaking, right? <laughs> yeah. i don't know if you play the guitar but like i mean i feel that from my sister and i had a sister that was married to an nfl player and he was polynesian and he's poly he's still polynesian um you know you big knew. money big money lots of money right away you know he gets injured ends up with not too much money suddenly there's no more agents around there's no more you know accountants around it's just him with all these people asking for you know they're taking back his cars they're taking back this and that and he, you know he's left broken they're not together anymore but i feel for him because i know you know new money can do stuff to people and you're so proud and happy but mm-hmm. you know you got to be smart you got to have people that love you no matter what you don't don't blow it out of proportion because yeah. you know be smart with it and we weren't always smart with it i my parents, I think, uh, at some points, thought the money would never stop, and uh, when it stopped, they they, wa- they wanted the same lifestyle, the same big home, but you can't. Yeah, you got to roll it back down and you know, live within your means. Um, we all learned that right after the success came and the success left. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the time because I know that we got to wrap up, but like <laughs> I know that there's so much more to the story, but I'll try to kind of extract as much uh as much of the good stuff out here for the for the you mean last five minutes or so but like um uh and and, and there's a the you mean you guys um are you, you guys are still doing music today or yeah we're still doing music uh mostly we have a lot of callbacks um there's a surge for 80s music again cool across the country it's like our I'm generation i'm a part of that <laughs> it's like our generation grew up and they want to hear you know and there's also a whole new generation that loves 80s yeah. music it's like cool to be retro and, and yeah yeah so we suddenly started getting callbacks to do shows um we're doing shows with vanilla ice salt and pepper again and i mean groups from the 80s and it's nice to see them because everyone's on a different realm they all got cool. kids now They've been out of the business, so they're happy to get work. So no one's got no egos. Yeah, they're just happy to do the music. Um, so passions infused back into yeah, it. Yeah. So we've been busy doing a lot of these shows just all over the country, all over the. We went to Guam, to the Philippines. Um, just people who love eighties music are like, we want to hear them if they're alive. We want to hear them. Yeah. Um, I I have a question before my last question, because um, you mentioned it. Um, you said that you're writing music also? Like, yeah. Are you doing like uh, stuff um, on your own? Yeah, I started writing music after I got married. Uh, after we left MCA Records, all of us started to realize, oh, you got to write your own music. All right, yeah. Uh, we were literally packaged. I mean, we had the talent. We could sing. We could perform and entertain the music. But we didn't know the musical side of it, artistic side of it. So I started writing music and been writing ever since. Um we had our last reunion album with the Jets was a few years ago, and I gave you a copy of that. We just started writing music, and uh, yeah, it's been a joy. Do gospel music, do country, do everything. That's awesome. Now, there's a there's a lot more that we could have dived into, and and I knew that your guys' story is so rich and 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 deep, and there's like a lot of layers that you can. And I feel like I barely even scratched the surface with everything you even shared. But hopefully, everyone. Where it was able to take some something to be inspired by through your journey and your family's journey, because I think, um, man, at the end of the day, man, I like you, I, uh, 
your guys' success, like I said, I'll be in an airport somewhere, you <laughs> mean everywhere, and I'll hear, or, or wherever, you know what I mean, and I'll hear you guys' song. And I feel, for whatever reason, although this is the first time we've met, uh, I feel attached to it, man. I'm like... That's because right, we're Polynesian. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's because we related. Oh, like, that's, that's right. Uh, I'm like yeah. in the grocery store, like heck of harmonizing <laughs> by myself. Like, like oh, I was, uh, I may have been another backup singer that that's was in so the, funny. but in another life. Anyways, um, um, but my last question is, and, and we've kind of talked a lot about the similar thing, but, and we ask this to everybody, when you consider everything, the ups and downs, even motherhood now. Mm-hmm. Even I, I'm grateful you shared that experience about that Grammy nominated song, like, and and just your whole journey, everything that makes you you today, mm-hmm. and even this year's crazy 2020, <laughs> all all of that. Uh, when 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 you consider all of everything that has brought you here to to this day in 2020, um, what are you grateful for? Oh wow, I'm. Uh... It gets down to it. You're grateful for the people you love. You're grateful for your health. Um, You're grateful that God gives you talents that nurture you, that give you, you know, some purpose. Um, I wasn't always a singer, but I learned how to sing better with my sisters. Um, And you're grateful even through the ups and downs that you have grown. I don't don't regret anything I went through, but you learn from them so you don't repeat it. (laughs) So I I just think I'm, I'm thankful for a loving Heavenly Father who constantly allows you to just kind of reinvent yourself. I was an 80s, you know, 80s rocker with my family, and we did all that stuff, but I'm still another person today. I'm a whole other girl, a mother and proud mother of six kids, and I have a husband that loves me, and uh, we just live a, a good life, a simple life. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Juana Wolfgram Finger. Thank you for, uh, Thank you for coming on. Well, probably I'm gonna.